You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contained threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. A bogus red alert app delivered spyware as well as panic. Blood alchemy backdoors Southeast Asian targets. A serious Cisco zero day is being exploited. Valve implements additional security measures for Steam. A warning on Atlassian vulnerability exploitation. Allies update their security by design guide. Ukrainian telecommunications providers are hit by a cyber attack. Ben Yellen explains attempts to tamp down pornographic deepfakes. Our guest is Ashley Rose from Living Security with a look at measuring human risk. And as always, criminals see misery as opportunity. I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire Intel briefing for Tuesday, October 17th, 2023. Cloudflare looked into the compromised Red Alert app that served false alarms of rocket attacks against Israeli users. They traced it to a knockoff of the legitimate Red Alert app, and they found that it had spyware functionality as well as the obvious panic-inducing disinformation. Cloudflare wrote, The malicious Red Alert version imitates the legitimate Rocket Alert application but simultaneously collects sensitive user data. Additional permissions requested by the malicious app include access to contacts, call logs, SMS, account information, as well as an overview of all installed apps. The researchers also found that the bogus app was flacked using domain impersonation. The bogus website, redalerts.me, differed by the single letter S from the legitimate Red Alert site, redalert.me, The site directed Apple users to the real Red Alert source, but Android users were sent to a site that served a malicious version of the app. Roger Grimes, data-driven defense evangelist at Nobefore, urged users of any apps to use only official app stores. While not perfect, they're far less risky than going off-brand. Researchers at Elastic Security Labs are tracking a new backdoor they're calling Blood Alchemy, 
that's being used to conduct cyber espionage against governments and organizations in the Association of Southeast Asian Nations. Blood Alchemy is part of the REF-5961 intrusion set described by Elastic earlier this month. The researchers believe the activity is state-sponsored and espionage-motivated, launched by a threat actor aligned with the Chinese government. The researchers note that Blood Alchemy is a backdoor shell code containing only original code, no statically linked libraries. The code appears to be crafted by experienced malware developers. The backdoor contains modular capabilities based on its configuration. These capabilities include multiple persistence, C2, and execution mechanisms. While unconfirmed, the presence of so few effective commands indicates that the malware may be a sub-feature of a larger intrusion set or malware package still in development, or an extremely focused piece of malware for a specific tactical usage. Cisco has disclosed an actively exploited zero-day vulnerability in the web user interface feature of Cisco iOS XE software when exposed to the Internet or untrusted networks. Cisco states, Successful exploitation of this vulnerability allows an attacker to create an account on the affected device with privilege level 15 access, effectively granting them full control of the compromised device and allowing possible subsequent unauthorized activity. Cisco says a threat actor has been exploiting the vulnerability since at least September 18th, with broader activity observed in October. Cisco says, We assess that these clusters of activity were likely carried out by the same actor. Both clusters appeared close together, with the October activity appearing to build off the September activity. The first cluster was possibly the actor's initial attempt at testing their code, while the October activity seems to show the actor expanding their operations to include establishing persistent access via deployment of the implant. Cisco strongly recommends that organizations that may be affected by this activity immediately implement the guidance outlined in Cisco's Product Security Incident Response Team advisory. Valve will require additional security measures for game developers on Steam in an attempt to prevent compromised developer accounts from being used to push malicious updates, bleeping computer reports. On October 24th, Valve will begin enforcing SMS-based security prompts for new updates to games' default release branches. Bleeping Computer notes that the move follows a spike in the use of compromised Steamworks accounts to distribute malware over the past few months. Yesterday, CISA, the FBI, and the MSISAC issued a joint cybersecurity advisory on the active exploitation of CVE 2023-22515, a vulnerability in Atlassian Confluence Data Center and Server, a widely used collaboration platform. Exploitation enables a malicious actor to create unauthorized Confluence administrator accounts with the attendant possibility of data exfiltration. The advisory recommends immediately upgrading to a patched version of the vulnerable product. The advisory doesn't offer attribution of the ongoing exploitation but various security firm researchers credibly point to China's Ministry of State Security as the probable responsible threat actor. The Five Eyes, plus Germany and the Netherlands, previously produced the original Guide to Security by Design, titled Shifting the Balance of Cybersecurity Risk, Principles and Approaches for Secure by Design Software. 
They've been joined by their counterparts in the Czech Republic, Israel, Japan, the Republic of Korea, Norway, the Organization of American States, and Singapore in updating the guidelines. CISA described the goal of the updated version made available yesterday, stating, This guidance is intended to further catalyze progress toward investments and cultural shifts necessary for measurable improvements in customer safety, expanded international conversation about key priorities, investments, and decisions, and a future where technology is safe, secure, and resilient by design. There's some minor skirmishing in the cyberspace surrounding Russia's hybrid war against Ukraine. CERT-UA reported Sunday that 11 telecommunications providers in Ukraine had experienced interference by an organized group of criminals tracked by the identifier UAC-0165. The goal of the attacks seems to be disruption as opposed to theft or extortion. The Hacker News says that a successful breach is followed by attempts to disable network and server equipment, specifically microtic equipment, as well as data storage systems. Researchers at Cluster 25 are tracking attacks by what they characterize as a Russia nexus nation-state threat actor. The campaign aims at harvesting credentials, and it involves phishing with a baited PDF that carries an exploit for CVE 2023-38831, a vulnerability in WinRAR compression software versions prior to 6.23. The fish bait is a PDF that purports to share indicators of compromise associated with malware strains that include Smoke Loader, Nanocore Rat, Crimson Rat, and Agent Tesla. Cluster 25 offers no more specific attribution than Russia Nexus, but the Hacker News speculates that the activity may be run by the SVR Foreign Intelligence Service. In what they've declared to be retaliation for Belgian support of Ukraine, the Brussels Times reports, websites belonging to the Belgian Senate Federal Public Service Finance, the Prime Minister's Chancellery, and the Monarchy were affected last Sunday. Service had returned to normal on all but the Senate's site by early Monday morning. The hacktivists posted a message to the Senate's site complaining of Belgium's commitment last week to supply Ukraine with F-16 fighters by 2025. Finally, returning to the other major ongoing hybrid war, the one between Hamas and Israel, there's a surge in scams seeking to steal from people moved to donate to humanitarian relief in the Middle Eastern conflict zone. Financially motivated criminals are using opportunities for charitable donations as fishbait. Last week, Bitdefender's anti-spam lab saw an increase in these sorts of fraudulent appeals. Some of them are cast as appeals on behalf of humanitarian organizations with the look, more or less, of a relief agency site, Others are cast as personal appeals, with addiction and false intimacy usually associated with people claiming to be the widow of a Nigerian prince. In any case, be wary and donate only to organizations you know and whose activity you can at least to some extent verify. A big flashing light of warning, Bitdefender points out, is asking for money in certain specific forms. Donation requests in crypto, wire transfers, and gift cards are a big red flag to be avoided at all costs. Resist, too, the temptation to let the scammer know that you're on to them and what you think of them. That just confirms that your email is being read and that there's someone with strong feelings behind your keyboard. 
they'll be back with more chum and other fish bait. And of course, do donate safely and securely where you think your charity is most needed. Coming up after the break, Ben Yellen explains attempts to tamp down pornographic deepfakes. Our guest is Ashley Rose from Living Security with a look at measuring human risk. Stay with us. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. And now a word from our sponsor, Sixth Sense. Sixth Sense provides award-winning cloud-based automated endpoint and vulnerability management solutions to streamline IT and security operations. With its advanced platform, businesses gain complete visibility and control over their infrastructure, reducing IT and security risks and optimizing operational efficiency. With Sixth Sense, you'll get real-time alerts, risk-based vulnerability prioritization and remediations, and an intuitive automation and orchestration engine so you can focus on your core business goals. Confident in the knowledge that your enterprise is secure, compliant, and running smoothly. To learn why enterprises choose Sixth Sense, visit SixthSense.com. Ashley Rose is CEO of Living Security, a firm that specializes in the quantification of human risk. I spoke with her on how to measure human risk as a component of overall cyber risk. Security leaders, organizations are spending, you know, as much as over $170 billion on IT security, but we're seeing breaches continuing to rise at an unprecedented rate. The rising DBIR, so they talk about human risk and the kind of percentage of breaches that humans are responsible. As much as 74% of these breaches um, are caused by some sort of, you know, human behavior or human risk. Yet we're only spending $2.7 billion on the training or the human problem. So but one of the most important things to note is that cybersecurity is a human problem. And we've been trying to solve it through basically improper investment in other technology. And and here we still are 10 years later. (laughs) 
You know, I, I hear folks talk a lot about um, insider risk. Is there a, a nuanced difference between that and human risk? So we look at human risk as an expansion on insider risk because I think oftentimes when we think about insider risk, people align it more closely to you know insider threat. And when you think about insider threat, oftentimes there's the notion that it's you know from a malicious intent perspective. And obviously that's you know not accurate in its true description, but um, what we really want to understand with human risk and specifically human risk management is how do we take a more proactive view at the behaviors that the behaviors that are causing risk to the organization? So it's really this notion of being able to shift left um, from a prediction and prevent perspective versus a detection and response, which is where I see most of the sort of insider threat or insider risk tools you know, fitting into the security tech stack today. Well, can you take us through some of the, the primary elements here that encompass human risk? What are some of the things that, that you all track? For living security specifically, um, when we think about our human risk index or our human risk score, we're actually looking at three different components that make up risk. So the easiest one, the one that people are most familiar with, would just be the behaviors themselves. Some, some examples of behaviors would be, a, you know, a user observed using a sale browser, repeat phishing offenders, you know, phishing followed by an incident or malware, uh, password management adoption, MFA adoption, sharing sensitive data against policy. So there's a number of different behaviors that could cause risk to the organization. But when we think about true holistic risk management, you know, risk to the company exists beyond just the vulnerability. We also need to think about the threat. You know, when we think about our risk model, we have to combine those behaviors with also the events that could be causing risk to that individual or to the organization. So if someone is highly targeted by a lot of malicious or spam-based email, they're going to be at a higher probability to falling susceptible to phishing, for instance. Uh, and then the third component, um, so we have our, our threat, we have our vulnerabilities or our behaviors, and then we also have to think about the impact. So who is that person? What is their job title? What is their role? What kind of data or sensitive data do they have access to? Right? What's the impact if that person is compromised or if there is a breach? Um, and so when we think about human risk, we're actually looking at all three components and then combining it to create this sort of view or quantification of, of human, human cyber risk for companies. To what degree do, do things like security awareness training come into play here? Yeah, so security awareness and training is really where um, where we got our start. And most of the companies that we come into, the way that they are measuring and monitoring the human side of risk is through traditional security awareness and training metrics. And so those are things like, you know, phishing click rates, phishing report rates, um, quiz scores on training. Uh, those are the traditional like compliance or training metrics that we see, um, you know, kind of the earliest companies start with. Our goal is actually to expand beyond just those phishing, the simulated phishing metrics for companies and to take more of a holistic view of risk. Um, and so you asked earlier, you know, if I, if I think from a categorical perspective, what matters? Training and compliance is something that we do track and monitor. Um, but we are, we're also looking at things like account compromise. We're looking at data loss. We're looking at malware. We're looking at phishing and email. And so if you, you can think about human risk management as an expansion of the security awareness and training program where those metrics are important, but they're only one piece of the overall pie. 
You know, I, I think cybersecurity is so focused on a lot of the technical aspects here. I'm, I'm wondering, do you find that there are areas that people mistakenly assign uh, a technical side when it really is a human element? Absolutely. And, you know, I think oftentimes, you know, as we've seen even most recently, you know, with some of the, the social engineering attacks um, and the, the smishing bishing attacks that are hitting the, the hospitality industry, the human is traditionally like the first point in, right? The first part of the attack. And then there's this kind of kill chain, this, um, you know, the, the technical controls then start failing right beyond the human component. And so then I think what we're seeing is, um, you know, CISOs becoming disillusioned by the opportunity of being able to affect that initial point of entry because security awareness and training and phishing for so long have failed to, to mitigate that and, and change behavior. And so there is an overemphasis on what happens next. And I think the fact of the matter is, and as we've seen over the last 10 to 15 years, no matter how many controls that we have in place, what different types of technologies we have in place, the, the human is still a is still um, a, a major vulnerability and point of attack. And we need to be effectively addressing it and thinking about a different way to do that. That's Ashley Rose from Living Security. And joining me once again is Ben Yellen. He's from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security and also my co-host on the Caveat Podcast. Hello, Ben. Good to be with you, Dave. So interesting article from Wired. This is written by Matt Burgess. And uh, the title is Deep Fake Porn is Out of Control. Uh, and it really highlights uh, some of the issues that uh, folks are, are facing here. It's certainly a policy issue. Uh, we've talked about deep fakes over on Caveat quite a bit. And as the tools become more readily available, uh, this trend of people using deepfake technology to generate pornography, uh, and this article specifically is talking about non-consensual imagery and videos and things like that that are vastly disproportionately uh, used uh, and, and abusive in harassment towards women. Uh, and the issues there. Um, before we dig into some of the details here, is that a decent description of what they're talking about here, Ben? Yeah, I mean, I think there have been a couple of factors. Uh, one is the improvement in AI technology makes it easier not only to create deep fakes, but to make them more realistic. Uh, and then there's the proliferation of websites either exclusively devoted to deep fakes or partially devoted to deep fakes to the extent that you can use search engines, Microsoft or, or Google, to find specific websites dedicated to hosting these images. Uh, so there's some responsibility, obviously, for the website makers themselves, but also potentially uh, for these uh, search engines, which are directing people to these websites. And I, I, I think deep fakes have been a problem for about a half decade, but the problem is growing exponentially because of these factors. And so what are some of the potential policy solutions to something like this? So it is really hard to target policies against deepfakes. I know uh, here in the state of Maryland, we've had long conversations about how just on a practical level, we can start to regulate it. What California uh, has done is to provide a cause of action in limited circumstances uh, for people who feel that they've been the victim of deepfake porn videos. 
that is a solution that's going to be opposed by the industry. They don't want to be held liable, uh, especially some of these search engines. It's certainly hard at the federal level when trying to hold the search engines accountable. They are protected by Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. Public pressure on the search engines is certainly uh, something that's achievable. I think both Google and Microsoft expressed in this article that it is not their intention to facilitate the distribution of deepfakes. For Microsoft, they said that uh, this violates their policies uh, on what can be uh, displayed in a in a search engine query, uh, and that any result containing deepfakes should be reported. And I think Google said something similarly as well. So there's sort of the rely on the private sector or try to regulate this at the uh, federal or state level. The problem is just jurisdictional. I mean, I think we've seen with a lot of state laws that are targeting any type of internet activity, it's just very difficult to enforce. Uh, You only have jurisdiction over your own state, and then there become a bunch of jurisdictional questions. What counts as a deep fake being posted within this state? Are you banning residents from uh, of your state from accessing deep fake videos, or are you simply banning people from posting deep fake videos, which you could only do if they are within the jurisdiction of your state? So this is not an exclusive problem uh, to deep fake videos. We've seen this with states, for example, trying to ban TikTok on um, in app stores that operate within the state of Montana, uh, as as one example. And I think that's that same struggle is manifesting itself on this issue. You know, I, I was puzzling through this in my own mind and wondering could could this go the the way of uh, CSAM, you know, child sexual abuse materials. But I think because there, you could make a case where, for example, you know, this is something that consenting adults could enjoy, uh, you would have trouble with a universal ban of something like this. Yeah, I mean, it's very difficult because CSAM is very clearly unprotected First Amendment activity. Um, there's really a carve-out in the First Amendment for CSAM. It's more complicated here. Uh, I think when we're talking about what this article is really referring to, which is the non-consensual use of these uh, deepfake images or videos, that to me is more of a clear-cut case where there is no First Amendment public policy rationale for allowing that material. The risks certainly outweigh any of the benefits. But when we're not talking about non-consensual images, I think um, however disgusted you are, you have to recognize that the First Amendment comes into play. And there could be some artistic value or political value uh, or just kind of any value adding something to the public square of of conversation uh, in some of these images that are going to trigger First Amendment protections. Uh, I think any challenge to both consensual and non-consensual deepfake videos are going to run into those First Amendment challenges um, because it is an, an inhibition on First Amendment protected activity. You know, we have decided that a bunch of things that are technically uh, or restrictions that are not allowed under our First Amendment jurisprudence should nonetheless be allowed for public policy reasons. We've done that in a number of circumstances, including certain types of uh, obscenity, false advertising. Uh, So I think it's possible for us uh, to make a societal choice that this type of non-consensual pornography with deep fakes is unacceptable and falls outside of First Amendment protected activity. We have not made that decision yet as a society. Uh, so I think it's it's going to be part of our, nas- our national conversation. Is this a, another example of uh, the technology uh, perhaps outstripping the policy's ability to deal with it? Yeah, it always does. Uh, you know, we've now gone about a half decade with deepfakes being an issue. 
I think, uh, you know, there have been congressional hearings on deep fakes and the deleterious impact of them. Uh, a lot of social psycho- psychology experts from many of our best universities have been writing about the harmful mental health effects of deep, uh, of deep fakes on mainly the women being depicted in them. Uh, so it certainly uh, entered into the zeitgeist, but we have not seen a lot of concrete outside of California. We haven't seen a lot of concrete policy changes in this area. So it is true that technology always outpaces the ability of our legal system to respond. And I think that's definitely the case here. All right. Well, point you back to the article here again, written by Matt Burgess. Uh, Deep fake porn is out of control. That's over on Wired. Ben Yellen, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And that's the CyberWire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. We'd love to know what you think of this podcast. You can email us at cyberwire at n2k.com. Your feedback helps us ensure we're delivering the information and insights that help keep you a step ahead in the rapidly changing world of cybersecurity. We're privileged that N2K and podcasts like The CyberWire are part of the daily intelligence routine of many of the most influential leaders and operators in the public and private sector, as well as the critical security teams supporting the Fortune 500 and many of the world's preeminent intelligence and law enforcement agencies. N2K Strategic Workforce Intelligence optimizes the value of your biggest investment, your people. We make you smarter about your team while making your team smarter. Learn more at n2k.com. This episode was produced by Liz Irvin and senior producer Jennifer Iben. Our mixer is Trey Hester with original music by Elliot Peltzman. The show was written by our editorial staff. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured.
visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. 